If you have a copy of God's Word, Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 39. My name is Daniel. I get the opportunity to teach God's Word today and serve here as one of the pastors. Uh, you're jumping into week four of, or week three rather, of a series that we've called Into the Quiet, where simply the whole point of this series is looking at the one biblical word of eremos, which means the wilderness or the desolate place, lonely places, or my favorite, the quiet place. I want to give you a quick overview of where we've been the past two weeks before this uh, and ultimately where we're headed in the future. Uh, But uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the end in mind of John the baptizer and his coming from and going into the quiet place, uh, being fully formed in his identity, who he was and what he knew God had called him unto. And then last week, we looked at the very beginning looking at structuring our lives like Jesus structured his. The whole point of last week was you could sum up in a sentence like this, to be a follower of Jesus means that you not only believe what he said, but also lived as he did. And then this week, we're going to jump to the end of Jesus' life. We've already read it, uh, but in the In the Garden of Gethsemane, what we see in the life of Jesus is this model of not only doing what he did, but also watching how he lived in the most difficult moments of his life. And then we're going to back up to Matthew 4 uh, and give an overview next week and then walk through it slowly, uh, leading all the way up to Palm Sunday. So one, one just quick note. For some of you who are uh, Bible uh, bookworms like myself, uh, you're probably going to be left uh, with uh, several questions that you wished of things I would have hit in this sermon, but I'm going to really narrow it down into what the model of what Jesus does and says. And then we're going to jump back into this passage at our Good Friday gathering. And so uh, just go ahead and put that on your calendar now and be back if you're curious. And if not, still come back because we'd love to spend Good Friday with you too. And so let's look at on the night before Jesus would give his life for the sins of the world, the man born to die, knowing his time is coming in the most final and most difficult moments of his life on earth. He does this, Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. That word Gethsemane, it means oil press. This is an olive orchard in the Mount of Olives. In Luke's gospel, he just simply says the Mount of Olives, but specifically Matthew, loving the details, points out the specific olive grove that Jesus decides to go into to spend time, not only with his disciples, but ultimately with his fathers, fit with his father. Some scholars have called this place, rightly, the place of crushing because the olives would be crushed before they would be used for anointing oil. In Luke's account of this very scene, he not only points out where Jesus goes to, but shows the rhythm that's in his life as we saw last week. Look at Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, 39, just one verse from Luke's account of this very scene. As he came out and went, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Meaning that Jesus, in his life, not only did this one-time event, but he had this normal rhythm of retreating to spend time alone with the Father, as was his custom. 
If someone was writing about your life, what would they say your customs were, the normal pace and practice, if you will, of your life? Would they say that you have this, not only a posture of desiring to be a follower of Jesus, but this normal rhythm to slip away, to be alone with him? Let's look closer at these details, reading the whole passage in its entirety from verse 36 to 39 in Matthew 26. Then... Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Notice this scene in verses 36 through 39. Jesus going into at night this olive grove with his disciples. It's as if he leaves nine or eight of them or nine of them together in one place and then takes the closest three a little further and then stops them, places them in a place and then goes a little further all by himself. And as he begins to talk with the closest three, notice in verse 37 there, it says, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. I don't know if you can paint this picture in your mind or not, but it's Jesus speaking and then he begins to be overwhelmed with emotion. I don't know what version of Jesus that you have in your mind when I say like, picture Jesus. Some of you probably picture paintings of Jesus with little children on his lap, or maybe for you, it's baby Jesus born and placed in a swaddling cloth and laying in a manger. Others of you, maybe it's Jesus hanging on the cross or resurrected standing uh, at the empty tomb, or maybe it's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Maybe it's a a whole variety of things, but I would highly doubt that many of you would think of Jesus in this way, overwhelmed with emotion. The phrase is rendered, he began. So it's almost this process as he is talking to his closest disciples, he begins to become sorrowful and troubled. This is not peaceful, blissful, walking at a slow pace, Jesus, like we looked at last week, but sorrowful. The word literally means to be overwhelmed or crushed with anguish. And in verses 36 and 37, as he is being overwhelmed and crushed with all of these negative seemingly emotions, he is in the place of crushing. It's what Gethsemane is rendered as. Both physically, he is geographically placed in the location of the place of crushing, and emotionally, he is being crushed with emotions, these overwhelming sense of anguish. And then he says, I must go to be with the Father. It begs the question for us, if we're looking at the model of what Jesus did and said, and the many times in your life and in my life where we are just caught off guard and over 
overwhelmed with just life itself or whatever it throws at us, where do you and where do I turn to next? You say there's many different things that you could do. There's many things that different individuals and our cultures do. Think about phrases we use when we have big emotions. You know, just bottle them up. Just push them to the side. Eat your feelings. Bluebell is a great comforter. Scroll your feelings because the exact thing that you need at your lowest is looking at everybody else's highlight reel. Binge your feelings. Netflix, a new season, will deal with it later. You see, one wise individual told me this phrase one time. He says, when you push things down, they come out sideways. When you bottle them up. You know, one, one thing that some of you may not know that we, we do here, but every Wednesday at four o'clock, I sit in this very room and do what we call pre-preach, where there's a brave individuals that come and listen to the unpolished version of the sermon. And we started beginning to talking about difficult troubles that we have in our lives and how we've dealt with them all in different ways. And one of the individuals sitting in that room, uh, we were talking about, it's like, you know, there's certain things in life that you always just have to deal with. Like life just throws on its brakes and you, no matter what you do next, you have to deal with it. Like you can't avoid it and not deal with it. And we began to dialogue and, and realize that no matter what pain or suffering that you go through in your life, it's always going to come out in your life, whether you deal with it or not. Like if you have emotional baggage from past broken relationships, it will affect every other relationship in your life until you actually deal with it. That's the whole point of this quote right here. That if you push things down, if you think, oh, I can't deal with that emotional baggage right now, it's gonna sit over there in the corner and mind you're fooling yourself. I would be fooling myself because when we push things down or try to run from things, they come out in all different ways in our lives. That's what this is talking about. It, they come out sideways in the moments and pain points in our lives. They are real issues. Several years ago, I was prepping to write a sermon on pain and suffering, and I sat down with a Christian counselor that I trusted, and we were talking about it, and he quoted and he said this, he says, the issue of our day in America is that Christians have no clue how to deal with pain any differently than everyone else. So what do we do? What do we do? Do we turn to Netflix, social media, bottle of ice cream, a bottle of things a little stronger that we don't talk about in church a lot? What do we turn to? Do we learn follow Jesus into the space of pain where he goes straight to his father and can't even stand up. Notice the language in verse 37. He falls on his face. The king of the universe isn't able to stay on his feet because of the overwhelming sense of agony that his spirit is in in this moment. Our emotions are pointers or windows in our lives of what our heart is actually dealing with. So like Jesus, we have to learn to turn and face them. Or maybe even a helpful, more helpful analogy is we have to learn 
to deal with pain like bison. I know you probably didn't think that was coming next, but in full transparency, I I taught on biblical lament to our teenagers last semester in a a sermon. I used this illustration and I couldn't find a better one. And I just really like this one, so I'm gonna use it. In the Midwest, uh, these observers of these herds of cattle and bison noticed that for some reason, these two different species dealt with the uh, elements extremely different. And what they realized is that uh, cattle, when they were, when this storm would pop up, whether it be a thunderstorm or a big winter storm out on the plains of the Midwest, cattle would, they would see the thunder clouds or the, uh, the wintry mixed clouds coming as animals can do and they respond to it. Like, I don't know if you've ever been out in nature on a walk and then you hear the birds chirping, you hear uh, animals rustling in uh, the woods, but then all of a sudden you hear nothing and then 10 minutes later it begins to rain. Because the animals, they responded to the elements of nature and they knew like, oh, it's about to change, it's about to rain, we have to go and hide and cover. But out in the plains of the Midwest, there's nowhere to run for cover. And so what beef cattle do is they've observed, they don't know why this is how they respond, but they see the thunderclouds, they see the storm coming and they turn like natural, like we do, and they run and they run and they run and they try to get away from the snow or the ice or the thunderstorm. But what that leads them to do is as the storm is following them, they just run with it. And it actually leads them to stay in the elements longer. But for some reason, they've observed that bison for turn and face it. And they charge it almost as if they're thinking they're going to attack said storm and they run at it and they run towards it and they actually point and they start walking the other direction right as it's coming. And so what ends up happening is the bison run this way, the storm's coming this way, and then they just pass through it in a quicker pace. And they deal with the elements much shorter than the cattle do. And so the reality for all of us is, is there a way that we can learn to approach pain and difficulty in this manner, in the manner that Jesus models for us to turn and face it, not run, not hide, not bottle, not sidestep, but turn and face. You see, the truth about pain in our lives is yet we all face troubles, they are all different. Some of you may have pain and suffering from the loss of a loved one. Some of you may be going through pain of your body failing through a physical injury or through aging. Others of you may be suffering through a mental health crisis, others through a broken relationship, some of you through temptation of sin that has damaged areas and relationships in your life and you're dealing with the consequences from your choices or someone else's. The reality is all these things, it doesn't make one pain greater or worse than another's, it just makes it unique to you. So what do we do with our pain? If we model after Jesus, we have to start, first start with a what I'm calling a, just simply a better theology of pain. A better theology of pain. The first thing that you and I need to understand in the midst of every season of our lives is that God sees you. He sees you. 2 Timothy 2.19 says it like this, the Lord knows those who are his. He knows you. He sees you. 
Second thing is this, is God hears you. Exodus chapter three, verse seven, the backstory of this is the people of God are in slavery and Moses is speaking to the Lord and the Lord is calling Moses to go and be a redeemer of his people through the power of God. And God says this, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. God sees you, God hears you. And the third thing is God cares for you. He not only knows you, he not only hears you, but he cares. First Peter 5, 6 and 7, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he might exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Yet none of these truths excuse that we will not have pain in our lives. We will. These truths are true no matter what you and I may ever face in our lives. And what we see in the life of Jesus is a template for addressing our pain in one simple verse, Matthew 26, 39. We'll read it in a second. But what we see Jesus doing is not distracting, not sidestepping, but meeting with God in the midst of his pain. Let's look at these four movements in one verse. Matthew 26, 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Step one, turn to God. Turn to God. This is the most difficult step, so I'm gonna spend the longest time on it. Notice the template and the model that Jesus puts before us that he's with his friends and Jesus models for us how we're to live all of our lives. And he takes with him his community in the midst of pain. He knew he didn't need to be alone, but he also knew the father was the place where his healing or his, the, the place he needed to be in be comforted. You know, Jesus' friends were actually no help at all. They failed him every time, but he models with us bringing your community in. One lie in the Christian community that we could have is that you could believe like, oh, I don't need, any, I don't need to talk about this with anybody else. I'm praying about it. It's like, well, Jesus doesn't model that. Jesus goes to his father and he goes in with his father, but he also takes with him his closest friends and says, I need you to be with me. I need you to pray for me in this moment. Watch with me. They fail him, but he models it for us of community and a regular life with his father is the context for transformation. And when Jesus turns to the father, he turns honestly with his feelings, not disregarding his feelings. You know, this isn't just our normal Bible study method of I just need my Bible, I'm just gonna open it, boom, start reading, move on with my life. As much as you and I would like to think, we're not blank canvases. We don't come with these empty slates and these empty cups that need to be filled up with God's truth. We come with muddy, muck, junk in ourselves as Paul's language that need to be transformed and renewed from the inside out. That we need God's word to purify and cleanse us and clean us. We need that life transformation. And part of it is understanding your emotions in the midst of it. In the book, Untangling Emotions, it talks about that our feelings express our intuitive view of how well a situation is providing for and protecting what we love. 
You see, your emotions and your feelings are revealing at one level or another what you and I love. The good ones, the not so good ones. For Jesus, what seemingly is exclusively negative emotions in this moment is too true, revealing what he loves. That even though this has been the plan from the beginning for him to give his life for the sins of the world so that God would not have to pour out his wrath on us, it's still painful. Play this out in your mind, a perfect relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit that isn't breaking, it isn't changing, but the Father is about to pour out his wrath on his Son. And in context, this eternal community of love has only experienced perfect unity and harmony for all eternity past. No cross word, no cross motives, no cross deeds, never doing something out of the wrong intention, This is what they've been experiencing, Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity past in perfect unity and harmony. And it's about to experience the wrath of God. Some of you are thinking, I would like to experience perfect unity and harmony for maybe a day, much less all eternity. What would it be like to be in a relationship with with individuals who literally are just seeking the best for all parties involved and not doing something with the wrong motive or doing something, get something they want, or just imagine forever, perfect unity and harmony. And what Jesus models with us and for us in this moment is vulnerability, showing us his heart that God desires to cleanse us from all of our sin within all of our being. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are forgiven but have you been purged? Is there still sin in your body that you have yet to address and fully just confess to the Father? He already knows, he's already forgiven it, but his desire is to transform us from the inside out, beginning with our hearts, and he will do that one day. But if we take the Bible seriously, he wants to start today. That he has forgiven us in Christ Jesus, but will we come to him in full honesty and transparency as Jesus modeled, who needed no need for forgiveness, no need of healing from sin. But what he practices is this honesty, this transparency of need to be with the Father in the most painful moments and most happiest moments of his life. Jesus practiced what the old saying is, is he prayed what he had. Or for you and I, pray what you got. The time with the Father is is a place to be real. It's not a place to be good. God is looking for honesty. He is not looking for the dressed up version of you, the Sunday version of you. He is looking for the real you that he already knows is there. If you're going to consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you're going to need to go to this place with him turn. Turn from the circumstances of your life into this place with him. Turn. Be with him. Turn. Step two is ask. Ask. You see Jesus framing his statement in the form of a question, but just another point is that two-thirds of our Psalms in our Old Testament are Psalms of lament. 
That may be a word that you're unfamiliar with, but Jesus, in some regard, models this biblical lament. And to use from Mark Vogrop's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, which is also in the Into the Quiet Guides, as a recommendation for this sermon, uh, here is an adapted definition of biblical lament. To lament biblically is a statement of faith. Lamenting is an oddest cry of a hurting heart that is wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promises of God's goodness. You see, to lament is not to say that you don't trust God. It's wrestling with, you know, the realities of God's goodness, of who he is and what he can do, but also what you're experiencing in that moment. Here is uh, on the screen all the personal psalms of lament in the scriptures. There's two-thirds of them are psalms of lament of some kind, but I went and picked out the individual. That if you're in the midst of pain right now, you could take any of these chapters of psalms and pray through this four-step formula and see it working itself out in this where they turn to God, they ask, and there's two more steps that we're gonna get into in just a moment, but this is what they do. That they... In this, underneath the heading of ask, oftentimes you'll find them complaining in a authentic way. We don't see Jesus complaining. He asked, but oftentimes in this section, you'll see a, a level of complaint. Look at one place with me in Psalms 13, just two verses there where they turn and ask. Psalm 13, one and two. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul, have sorrow in all my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You see, they turn to God. How long, O Lord? It's addressing God. And then there's a level of complaint in the next few phrases of they're asking this question, begging God and honestly complaining. But then it always moves into three Step three of request. You go to turn, ask, request. Jesus gives to his father all of his wants and desires. If it be possible, what's the request? May this cup pass from me. It all comes back to our desires. It all comes back to what we want. And in our sin-filled bodies, very different from Jesus of absent from sin, but in our sin-filled bodies, the problem is, is these are so complex and so confusing that if you and I were to practice this authentically and really in our time with the Lord, it would be very confusing to be honest, but that's what we must do. Because many of us, we desire to follow God's call on our lives, but we also, we don't want to take up our cross. We want to die to self. We want to follow Jesus, but taking up our cross doesn't feel exactly the right thing we want to do either. We want to be holy, but we also really want to sin. We want our desires, but we also want God's as well. So how do we practice this to authentically request? Follow the pattern of Jesus, even though yours will be way messier than his. God I really want blank. Good, bad, straight up, ugly. Offer it to God because if we believe the scriptures to be true, it says that he will take our desires and learn to remodel and reshape our hearts to look more like his. Request. 
Step four, trust. Jesus lands here and we must as well. You cannot stop short in any of these sections. To turn, to ask, to request, and then to trust. Each one of these movements of seeing that Jesus, where he lands is, but not my will, yours be done. If you're going through a moment of pain or struggling to be transparent with the Lord, these are going to take time. It may not even happen in one simple time of prayer with him. But the point is, is to be fully known and learn to fully surrender. To let a go of all the illusions of control that you and I like to believe we have over our lives of all the moments that we try to engineer outcomes and organize our life to have the perfect set of conclusions. But come to this place where we say, God, your will be done. Learning to yield, learning to move through the chaos waters of all of our emotions to come to this inner peace of resting in the promises of the Lord. Here's the pattern. Go into the place of pain and meet God there. The great lie that we too often believe is if we move away or distract ourselves enough, then our pain will just go away. Remember, time heals all wounds. No, it doesn't. Moving towards it with God and with genuine community in the midst of it is what will heal your pain. Learn like a bison to face it. Sit in it and wait for the true healer, Jesus, to meet you there. Many of you right now may be feeling fear more than peace because you're afraid of this. You're afraid of what it would look like to be alone. You're afraid of what it would look like to actually be honest. You're afraid of what might come up in a meeting with, with Jesus. You're afraid of what's under the surface. But to quote our Savior, his most often quoted phrase, all throughout scripture, do not be afraid. What you will find waiting in the deep, dark places of your soul is love. Father, Son, and Spirit waiting to welcome you, waiting to love you, waiting to heal you, waiting to, as we sing so often, free you. In the quiet, being totally exposed, totally seen, yet totally loved and known completely forgiven and in Christ loved by God the Father just as you are as that old hymn is few people would probably ever realize it or experience what Jesus models for us but I'll say it again do not be afraid follow Jesus to Gethsemane because our Savior has already walked the path. He's already bared His cross so that we could experience healing, forgiveness, hope, and comfort because of what He's done. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank You for walking the path that we would never walk on our own. 
you invite us in just as we are. Not to clean ourselves up, not to dress ourselves up to be good, but in full transparency to be fully known, fully seen by you. Jesus, may we learn to follow your model into the pain points of our story and trust you. You've already done all that's required to be forgiven, fully known and seen and loved in you. May we enter in with you into the quiet space. Right now, would you give us courage for those feeling a burden of, I don't want to go there. I just want to pray the prayer to be forgiven, to be in heaven one day. I don't want to deal with those parts of brokenness in me. Would the still small voice of your Holy Spirit encourage us? Would they whisper to us, do not be afraid. May we follow you as the leader and forgiver of our lives into the quiet. In Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us? There'll be some prayer team members at the back. If you want to use the front as an altar of sorts, we're going to sing a couple of songs and worship uh, King Jesus now.